As was just mentioned, we are delving into a new book. Uh, we are starting a series in First Peter. Uh, it's epistles. Uh, it's, you know, you have a lot of epistles by Paul, and you have a few by Peter, and a few others by other folks. Um, but we're looking at First Peter. We're just going to look at the first two uh, verses today. But I was thinking about this book, this letter, um, and thinking about how to introduce it. Um, it seems like it's a far removal from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is this big, long tome of law. Uh, and First Peter is, is sort of about what does it mean to live this life in the face of trials and tribulations. And they don't seem to, to have a lot in common. Um, but they do. They do have some things in common. Both books look forward to the promised land. For Deuteronomy was looking forward in shadows and types and uh, through the physical land, the temporary land of the land of Israel. Uh, I was looking through that land to a future spiritual reality. But here in the book of, or in the letter of 1 Peter, it's actually looking to that spiritual place, that spiritual land, the eternal home and the fulfillment of that promised land that was promised uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. Second, both books uh, were written to God's chosen people. We see that at the very outset. We'll look at that uh, in this uh, text here before us this morning. Um, but there's, there's a bit of a difference. Uh, there's this covenant people of God, the Israelites, the circumcised, and then Peter's addressing to God's chosen people, but it's, it's a bunch of uncircumcised pagans on the borderlands of, of uh, the Roman Empire. And then thirdly, both Deuteronomy and 1 Peter were written to help God's covenant people to live holy lives. And what all these similarities, what really sets them apart is the epics that they're in. Those, those periods of time. Deuteronomy was written in a period of time looking forward through veils and shadows to the things of Christ. It looked, it looked in a veiled way to Christ and the reality of Christ. And this one looks back at Christ, at his death, at his life, at his resurrection. And because of that, I thought it would be good, a good follow-up, um, especially after the difficulty of looking through veils. Sometimes it's nice just to see the thing clearly. There's Jesus right in front of me. And I'll look at Jesus. Um, and so we'll do that uh, this morning through for, or for, the next, uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, there are some challenging things that we'll come across in this letter, but uh, it does have that clarity um, that we, uh, we might rest in, you might say. This is a book that's meant to bless us with grace and with peace. We see that at the very outset uh, in our text this morning. And Peter repeats it again at the end of the letter. Grace and peace. So with that introduction, let's turn to our very short text, uh, which is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Hear God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The word of the Lord. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this letter of Peter. We pray that you would encourage us, uh, that you would remind us of that mercy uh, and peace that is ours in Christ. Uh, Through it, that we would be strengthened by it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a, a dying art form called the letter. Kids, do you know what a letter is? It's a, it's a dying art form, the personal letter. Uh, you know, we may still occasionally send a card that has the functions a little bit like a letter. Um, but, but generally speaking, we streamline our communication. We truncate it. We get rid of absolutely everything that seems superfluous. And so our letters become very short, uh, our letters, meaning our emails and our texts, um, and to the point. So you might get a greeting like, hi, or you might not even get a greeting. You just get some words <laughs> without any sort of greeting. Um, one of the, the most challenging things uh, is when I don't uh, have someone's contact information in my phone and somebody sends me a text without any sort of acknowledgement of who they are. And they, they say something like, oh, would you like to get together for lunch tomorrow? Like, okay, how do I answer this? So you, then you start running through all your phone records on pieces of paper everywhere in the house trying to match it up to the phone number. Uh, and, and, and maybe you think, well, I'll just say, sure, who is this? Um, but that wouldn't, that wouldn't go over well, right? So then maybe you say, well, no, sure, where and when? And they say, well, how about my house? <laughs> right? We're so, we're so short on greetings. But our text this morning is a greeting, an important greeting, uh, a, a very rich greeting. In fact, I was uh, writing out the sermon and I thought, man, I've written a lot on f- just two verses, um, but there's so much packed into this greeting. And I think sometimes we see a greeting, we think it's flyover territory in the Bible, but I want us to spend this morning examining it. And what I want us to see through it is that God's grace and peace are both necessary and sufficient for our sojourn, our journey, our pilgrimage to glory. God's grace and peace are both necessary and sufficient. To see this, we'll look at various parts of the greeting. So we'll just kind of break the greeting down. Uh, first, who the letter is from. Next, who the letter is to. Finally, we'll look at the blessing. Um, so from, to, and then the blessing. Uh, and hopefully we'll, we'll see that grace and peace that is ours. So first, from Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Who is Peter? He's a, he's a rascally one, isn't he? Peter's the, the firebrand of the gospel accounts. Uh, when we first meet Peter, he's a zealot. He's somebody who wants to see the end of Roman occupation and to see... The, the coming of the, the, the kingdom of Israel now in that place. Uh, he's the one who rebuked the Lord Jesus when he stated that the Christ, the Messiah, had to come and suffer and die at the hands uh, of the chief priests and elders and uh, authorities. And Peter rebukes Jesus. This is, this is Jesus. How can you die? You're here to, to usher in a new kingdom. Peter's the one who, at the hour of the Lord's suffering, Chopped a man's ear off. Right? 
Not only that, but he denied the Lord three times. Yet he's also the one who confessed Christ. He's an enigma, right? He, He was the one who said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. He was the one by Jesus who said he would build his church. Through whom? And it wasn't just Peter, the apostles, but it was through Peter's witness, his apostolic witness. He's going to build the church of Jesus Christ through him. And even after he denied his Lord three times, the Lord restored him and said, feed my sheep. Continue this work. At the same time, even after Pentecost, after the Lord Jesus had ascended and he was going out as a missionary and as a, pro- proclaiming the good news, he clung to his Jewishness, right? The Lord revealed to him that net full of unclean animals to say, hey, Peter, the gospel is not just for the Jews, it's for everyone. And immediately following that, Cornelius the centurion comes And he ministers to him. But even then, Peter still struggles. Later in in Galatians, we read about a conflict between Paul and Peter where Peter was kind of a a little, didn't want to be seen eating with the uncircumcised Christians. They weren't fully Christian enough. He was in many ways, and it, it was a complex mess of a person. I find this extraordinarily encouraging. I, I, I find the fact that he is uh, a mess and complex and he's always kind of growing and haltering, that, that he is uh, in many ways like the average Christian. I think it's sometimes harder to relate to Paul. Paul has this Damascus Road moment where he changes from one to the other. He goes from persecution to zealot for, for the proclamation of the gospel. But Peter's this work in progress. Moments he had stunning faith. In moments, he had utter faithlessness. And maybe what is most surprising about our letter this morning is that it was written at all. After all, Peter was writing not to a predominantly Jewish church, but to a diverse ragtag group of mostly recent pagan converts with some Jewish expats in the mix, living on the very outskirts of the Roman Empire. Uh, so I, don't, I can't draw a map in my head, but you know, if this is, this is Italy's boot, I guess over here um, is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And Peter's writing to the churches kind of on the north, central north side of that area, kind of butting up against the Black Sea. It's, it's, it's right close to the barbarians, right? It's almost uncivilized, the area. Um, It's not exactly his usual target audience. Paul called him the apostle to the circumcised. And as Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. But here, Peter is writing this spectacular letter to a bunch of pagan converts in the outskirts of the Roman Empire. You see, his letter was written towards the end of his life and ministry, probably around or a little before A.D. 64, right before Uh, the persecution under the Emperor Nero. So Nero was the emperor, but it was before Rome burned and and the emperor said, oh, it's their fault. Uh, So before that moment in time, he is in Rome. Paul is headed off likely to Spain, at least that's what tradition said. And Peter's writing from Rome. Well, in many ways, he's still the same Peter. He's vigorous and passionate. Yet he's a man honed by the gospel. 
He has gained perspective over the course of his life. For Peter, there was no Damascus Road experience. Rather, for Peter, it was a lifelong process of transformation, of growth and grace. And isn't that what it's like for most of us? That long, plodding journey, growth. We're a complex, messy people who slowly and haltingly are being honed by the gospel and so slowly and haltingly are getting perspective over time. It's only after years and years of this process that Peter, toward the end of his own pilgrimage in this world, can write to a bunch of pagan converts and call them the elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, we're going to come back to what all those words mean in a minute, but just briefly, those were words that were for, very particularly, God's covenant people. And so to call for Peter to say, you're equal with with my brothers and sisters, you are the elect exiles, is a remarkable thing. I don't think uh, we would have been able to say this earlier. He was a man honed by the gospel. And it's only after years and years of this process that Peter, toward the end of his own pilgrimage in this world, can write to a bunch of pagan converts in this way. And he calls them exiles. Exiles. The word there could be translated pilgrim or sojourner. Now, the word pilgrim in our American context is fraught with our historical experience, but the word just simply means one who is on a long journey, but with a little more to it. It's one who belongs to another place. This isn't the home. Sojourner. If you've ever spent significant time away from your home country or your home state or your home city or whatever, and you have a, an affinity for your home, uh, you know what this is like. Spend lengths of time away from that place. Peter calls the people he is writing to exiles, sojourners, pilgrims, because he too is a sojourner, exile, and a pilgrim. He couldn't have said this earlier in his life. He would, have, he would have said, no, I'm at home. Rome, the Roman centurions, the Roman authorities, everybody in Jerusalem need to get out because this is my home. And now at the end of his life, he's saying, this is not my home. Peter, as an example, gives us courage. He reminds us that even the great apostles are a messy work in progress. Peter, who clung so dearly to his earthly kingdom, was now clinging even more dearly to the kingdom to come. He was a grace-transformed sojourner, proclaiming grace and peace to fellow pilgrims on the journey. Friends, how do you see yourself? How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself at home? Friends, this isn't our home. We, we live here. We, we work here. We thrive here. We do all sorts of good things here. We proclaim good news here. We, 
we work to the glory of God here. We reflect to the Creator in all that we do. All those things that are good in this life, we ought to do with all the gusto. But we ought not to cling to it as our home. Friends, where's your home? Well, we need to turn our attention to the recipients of this letter. To the elect exiles of the dispersion. Such a strange name given to these Christians in Asia Minor. On uh, various places, various churches throughout the time, there's all sorts of discussion as to whether Peter had visited them or not, or whether Silas had brought this letter. And There's all sorts of discussion on exactly where this was. Um, But we know that it was Turkey. We know that it was in the central northern places. But who are these people, these elect exiles of the dispersion? Well, we'll kind of pick these words apart. We need to unpack them. The first word we encounter is one that brings all sorts of consternation. Just the word, the elect. It's It's like a buzzword that people don't like really to discuss. Uh, the doctrine of election and Calvinism and predestination and the nature of free will, etc. All those things sort of come to mind when we hear that word. And we can quickly abstract this word into a theological and philosophical debate. That's what we do. Well, what does it mean, free will versus predestination? And we can have this philosophical debate. But after spending so much time in the book of Deuteronomy, I think it would be hard for us not to see this word in light of Israelite history. God had a people for himself. He set them aside as his own. And and this is what makes Peter's words so spectacular and so surprising. He's using the language associated with God's covenant people, Israel, and he is applying it to a bunch of uncircumcised pagans. You are mine. He's saying to them, you have been chosen by God. To be my people. To make it more forceful, Peter goes in verse 2 and he calls them the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Another big buzzword. Here we go. The foreknowledge. So then we can say again, we can say, oh, you know, what does this word mean? Does it mean that he sees ahead into time, knows what people will choose, and then chooses them based on their choice? But we get ourselves wrapped up in those sort of philosophical discussions. But at the heart of this word is not some technical philosophical concept. At the heart of this word is God's steadfast love. It is His, that is God's, knowing us. I've I've said this before. You're going to hear me say it again, I'm sure. When God heard the cries of his people in Egypt in slavery in Exodus 2, he heard them and it said he knew. That's all it says. The end of chapter 2 of Exodus, you can go look at it. Here's the cries of the people and he knew. What did he know? They're suffering. Yes. God knew them. When Moses is interceding on Mount Sinai on behalf of Israel, that stiff-necked, calf-worshipping crowd of No good scoundrels, as they were. Moses pleads in his third intercession on behalf of the people who says, God, you know me. And you know them as your people. On the basis of that, go with us. Be our God. 
When scripture talks about knowing, it's not talking about some cognitive reality. Oh, yes, they have brown hair and blue eyes and whatever. It's God knows them intimately, personally. This is the basis of relationship. God knowing us as his own. And just as an aside, the converse is true. The converse is true. Jesus says of those who didn't bear the fruit of faith in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. Pretty strong language. But do you see the heart of it? God's knowing us is essential. It's his loving us. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. The great longing of the human heart is to be known and to be loved, isn't it? Isn't that what we all desire? To be, to be known and to be loved? So Peter says to these former pagans who are struggling in the outskirts of society, surrounded by a people who will eventually persecute them, and he says to them, you are known. You are loved. You are the people of God. Elect, chosen according to the steadfast love of God. Friends, this is the greatest truth that can be expressed. To be fully known by God, warts and all, sin and all, and to be loved by Him. But Peter doesn't stop with saying that they are elect. He goes on to say that they are sanctified. They are the elect and sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Um, the word here, or, could be translated by or through. It's, just, it's pretty amorphous. It depends on context. But through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And here's the thing. When we think of sanctification, we often think of it in terms of our Christian walk, right? I'm growing in grace. That's the process of sanctification. That's a theological concept. It's, we see it in Scripture. But there's another word, way in which this word is often used. So when we talk about there being saints... We're saying, you are what? Holy. Set apart. So here, when it's talking about sanctification, it's talking about that work of the Holy Spirit that he does in making us a holy people. Do you see this sort of the spectacular nature of this? Peter is saying to this uncircumcised pagan crowd up in Asia Minor, he's saying, you are sanctified. You are holy. Holy, you are set apart. You belong to the Lord. These uncircumcised Gentiles are called holy. Peter truly has gone through his own transformation. He's using all the language normally applied to his own people, the Jewish people, and applying it more broadly to these folks on the outskirts. They are made holy by the Spirit. I think this is a hard concept. The idea of being holy is a hard concept to grasp. Um, as I think it's hard, not just because it's hard to grasp intellectually, what does it mean to be set apart? What does it mean to be holy? Um, but I also think it's hard because it's hard for us to fathom. As those loved and known by God, you are a holy people, you are saints. You are precious and beautiful and sacred. You are washed. When the Lord looks on you, 
He sees the holy ones. This is a thing of grace, isn't it? It's only by the Holy Spirit washing and cleansing us and setting us apart that we can be called as such. But what a glorious thought that when the Lord looks on me, He sees me as a holy one. Like the angels above, He looks on me and sees beauty and perfection. He sees Christ. Yes, there's a process of sanctification. We're still sinner saints. We still walk in this life with all the mess of our hearts and sin, and we still need to grow and change and all that. But but when we're looked on, we're loved and called holy, set apart for him, precious. Finally, he says of them that they are blood-cleansed people who are called to walk in holiness and obedience. You see, all this is possible. The electing, the knowing, the loving, the sanctifying, the obedience. All of this is possible. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. Again, Peter here is drawing on the history of his own people. When Moses sprinkled blood on the sacrifice, uh, uh, the blood of the sacrifice, he sprinkled it on various objects. This was at Sinai during the covenant-making process. He also took half the blood and he threw it on the people. You can hear about it here in Exodus chapter 24. Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood of it he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. You see, the people, all people really, were called to obey the covenant. People's life, their blood, which symbolized life, was forfeit for disobedience. And yet, as we've looked at over the months, friends, the law cannot save us. The law cannot save you. There's there's no hope through obedience to the law. The blood of bulls and ghosts cannot save us. But there is a better blood than bulls and goats. Christ's atoning death covers our sins so that we might be known and we might be loved by God. By the way, did you notice the triune nature of this little greeting? The Father calls, elects, foreknows, the Spirit sanctifies, sets apart. And the Lord Jesus atones for our sins. All this in the little greeting of a letter. I want to conclude with this thought. Grace and peace be multiplied to you as you sojourn. He calls them the elect exiles of the dispersion. Again, he's drawing from the history of Israel. He's taking the imagery of the Israelites' own exile from the land and he's, he's saying, and he's applying it spiritually to the church. No longer does Peter look to the establishment of Jerusalem and Israel as a nation. Peter's long gone. He's been honed and transformed by the gospel. And now he looks forward in faith to his heavenly home. To a salvation that is ready to be revealed. That's where we're going to go next week. 
the salvation that's kept in heaven for us that's going to be revealed to us. Um, and what do we need as we think about this journey to our heavenly home? What do we need? We need strength. Daily strength. So first, how, the first thing I just want to say about this need is that uh, we need to know whose we are. We'll go back to the first two points, right? We are blood-washed, spirit-sanctified, fully known and loved people of God. Second, the thing that we need to recognize is that God blesses us with grace and peace. Not just once. He doesn't just bless us once and say, all right, here's grace. Don't waste it. He says, here's grace multiplied to you. Over and over again, grace and peace multiplied to you each day. He is our God. We are his people. And as difficult as the Christian life may be, we are blessed with peace that passes all understanding. What, what a glorious thought that, that even in the face of the greatest challenges that, that, that life can bring at us, we have peace. Because why? Because we know that we have a salvation that is secure for us, ready to be revealed at the last time, that we can look forward and say, my life be forfeit. I have a home. And I'm marching towards it. And I am at peace with my creator because of the blood of Jesus. Grace each day to strengthen and encourage us. To remind us of that unmerited love. Grace found in his word. Grace found in intimate communion with him through prayer. Grace found in the meal that we're about to partake. Grace upon grace. Friends, grace and peace be multiplied to you as you sojourn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.